Before we get started with this episode of Walking with Dante, let me just say that this podcast has gone on for three years, more than three years. In fact, you may be back toward the beginning of our Walk with Dante. I never intended this podcast to overtake my life, but it has. I'd like to ask for a little help. I have a great deal of costs associated with this podcast, including fees to join scholarly journals to get library access, including hosting fees, streaming fees. I have to buy the copyrights to the music, the sound effects, and I have to put the thing up and let it live somewhere. So I have to pay for those services too. All of that has eaten into the budget, and I have turned down sponsors in favor of asking for your help. So before we get started, let me just tell you that there is a PayPal link both in the show player itself and in the notes to this podcast. If you would like to donate to this podcast and support it, that would be terrific. I'd say a dollar, a euro, a Canadian dollar per episode. That'd be fantastic. Half a dollar, 50 cents. Um, you know, half a quid uh, for an episode. That's also pretty fantastic, too, if you have enjoyed the journey. Even if you don't, I'm still going to continue on this passion project. I'm simply asking for a little help for something that I had no intention of overwhelming my life onto the episode. Hi, this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough. And if you know this podcast, you know we are walking with Dante passage by passage through his masterwork comedy. And in this episode, we are all the way up to Canto 4 of Inferno. We're going to be at lines 85 through 114. If you're just dropping into the podcast here for the first time, you should know that if you go all the way back to the beginning to episode one, you can follow in the journey with us and pick us up and get right back here with us where we are in this episode. And if not, of course, you can drop in here and see what it's all about, but it'll make a little more sense, especially this passage, if you've been through what we've already been through. If you want to see this passage, you can find it on my website, markscarbro.com, or on the website walkingwithdante.com, which just directs to my website. Otherwise, we're just going to pick up where we left off last time. Last time, Dante had heard a voice calling out, welcome to the poet, the highest poet, <laughs> the one basically prodigal son-like who was lost and is found, well, who left and now came back. And then he sees four great shades, and I'm not sure exactly how a shade can be great. It's a little bit of a problem, but four great shades walking to them. And maybe here comes the explanation. So here we go. Canto four of Inferno, lines 85 through 114. My good master started to speak. Check out the one with the sword in his hand, leading the other three as their sire. That is Homer, the sovereign poet. Next comes Horus, the satirist. Ovid is third and Lucan is last. Because each of them shares with me the title, the lone voice called out, they honor me and thus do well. And so I saw gathered the beautiful school of that lord of the highest song that soars above all the others like an eagle. After they had chatted among themselves for a bit, they turned to me with welcoming gestures, and my master smiled at all this. 
Then they gave me even more honor in that they made me one of their company, so that I was the sixth in this wise council. This is how we went on toward the light, talking of things that should be left in silence now, although it was good to speak of them when I was there. We came to the pediment of a noble castle wrapped seven times by towering walls, which were themselves defended all around by a beautiful brook. We crossed over this as on solid ground, and I passed through the seven gates with these sages. We even got to a meadow with fresh green grass, where there were people with slow, grave eyes and great authority in their appearances. They didn't speak much, only with soft voices. I'm going to drop it right here with the crowd that's inside the castle because they're going to come up next time in the next passage. And I kind of want to leave it because it's a big crowd and we kind of have to talk through that crowd. So we're just going to get Dante up to the castle and through and looking at the people with the slow, grave eyes and great authority in their appearances who don't speak much, but only in soft voices. It's hard to remember you're in hell. What happened to us? We were with stinging wasps and bees and maggots and worms and flags and screaming people and fainting pilgrims and Karen and boats and it looked like hell and what? Where, where are we now? Castles, green grass, it's shocking. It doesn't seem right and maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Last time in the podcast, I talked a lot about ambivalence and Dante's ambivalence and how ambivalence may, in fact, imbue this entire canto, which has always made me dissatisfied with it. So I'm going to start there. We're going to divide this passage into three different sections, and I'm going to take them one by one and just talk through them. So here we go. My good master started to speak, and Virgil says, check out the one with the sword in his hand, leading the other three as their sire. Let's just stop there first. A voice calls out and honors Virgil as the highest poet come back. And now come these four shades, and Virgil says, note the first one that's got a sword in his hand. There's a lot of commentary, a kind of eruption of commentary, on who says that line about honoring Virgil and the shade that went forth or left has come back. Who says that? I think the obvious answer is this guy with the sword, which is Homer. But it's not always been the answer. Many people claim that all of these poets say it together. All of these writers say it together. Many of them claim it's a disembodied voice somehow, maybe even a spiritualized voice, which is a little bit weird. Um, I'm not sure that you could get a voice from heaven echoing down here, and I'm not sure that a voice from heaven is right for this. seems like somebody on scene has to say it, and it seems like Homer has to be the one to say it since he's the first one. Notice how Homer is, the one with the sword in his hand. So Homer's walking toward them. Homer, the poet. I mean, the Odyssey, Ulysses, Iliad, Troy, you know, that whole bit. The great poet who Dante didn't know, who Dante had no access to, who Dante only knew about through other poets. Look how Homer looks, though. He's got a sword in one hand. Remember back at the harrowing of hell when Virgil detailed that and said that a powerful one or a mighty entity or however you wanted to translate it dropped down into hell and yanked out the shades of many of these Old Testament figures. And Virgil said that that shade came down, the powerful one, with the insignias or the symbols of victory. Notice that there's an echo here. 
Homer is also walking with a sword out in his hand, which is a symbol of victory. You don't walk around with your sword out unless you're kind of in a victorious march in some way or unless you're headed into battle. We don't think Homer is here headed into battle. We think he's holding his sword up as kind of a guide, you know, know, like those museum guides in Europe who've got the stupid umbrella up or the stupid flag up. He's like that. Love the idea of Homer as a museum guide. Uh, he's walking with his sword up, but it is it is a weird echo of the moment in which the powerful one, who we know as Jesus, descends and may show further ambivalence in the passage. He's leading the other three as their sire. It sounds very medieval, very uh, courtly medieval. Their sire, and then, then here they come, Homer, the so- and it says the sovereign poet, the supreme poet. Now. Remember, Dante is a late medieval, she's done the cusp of the Renaissance figure. Dante doesn't know anything of Aeschylus or Sophocles or Pindor or Sappho. There's so much that Dante doesn't know, particularly about Greek writers. And he doesn't know Homer except through the commentary of others. So he has this poet arriving who he's never read, who he's putting as the the leader with the sword, the sovereign poet. It's kind of wild, actually. Next comes Horace, the satirist, and then Ovid is third. Dante would mostly think of Ovid as an elegiist, as a writer of elegies. Yes, the metamorphosis. And believe me, we're going to come across Ovid again and again and again if you walk far enough in the comedy. There may be ways in which Ovid is more important to Dante than even Virgil is, but Ovid third, and then Lucan, the great writer of history, last. We're going to save a discussion of Lucan till later because Lucan's going to come up, and particularly Lucan's notions of Julius Caesar is going to come up in the comedy. So I'm just going to hold that for a bit. Just this last weekend, I was in a, well, I am in an extremely Tony. <laughs> my gosh, Tony, the group on Dante online. And it is made up of mostly Italian professors. And believe me, this group stretches my notion of Italian to the limits because for me, Italian is only a written language. It's not a spoken language. So that I'm on this online group is crazy. And I got into a giant commentary on these three lines this last weekend that I brought up a kind of innocent question and wow, they all came at me, not not loaded for bear, <laughs> they didn't come at me in any bad way, but I mean, they just all had their ideas um, about Homer and Horace and Ovid and Lucan. And I, what I came up against is the difference between how Italians and many Europeans read the comedy and how I, out of the Anglo-American tradition, read it. I read these four poets as important and representative. I want to talk to you about why in just a minute. They read them much more closely. And it's all predicated on that line, Ovid is third. And they have giant arguments on why Homer is first, Horace is second, Ovid is third, Lucan is last. Why are they in that order. Not just why are they who they are, but why are they in that order? And let me say that that argument, out of my rationalist Anglo-American literary interpretation stance, that argument is so far beyond me because they start jumping up into allegory and how home, what Homer represents as an allegorical figure, not just as a poet, what Horace represents allegorically, what Ovid represents allegorically, what Lucan represents allegorically. 
And given that I come out of this Anglo-American literary interpretation that is kind of out of the rationalist uh, point of view, I'm just looking at them as figures and trying to figure out why these four figures, not what they are allegories of and not why their placement is as they are. So it just tells you the different ways the comedy is read. I just wanted to share that as a kind of wild thing. Believe me, Dante's looking at these four figures and he doesn't even know. Dante doesn't even know that in within one generation after his death, in the generation of Boccaccio and Petrarch, there are going to be double the number of classical texts available one generation after Dante's death. So Dante's understanding of the classical world is limited. But here he's got this epic poet, Homer, this satirist, Horace, this elegiast, Ovid, as he would probably think of him, and this historian, Lucid. There's a couple people left out of this list that Dante would know. Where is Propertius, who's also an elegiast? Um, Propertius is not here. There's a question about why he's not here. Dante would have ability to know him, uh, maybe does know Propertius, maybe, maybe not. And Statius is not here. Statius is not here for other reasons, because <laughs> Statius is elsewhere in common. So Statius is not here for other reasons, but we'll talk endlessly about him when we get to it. So let's just deal with what we have. We have Homer for epic, we have Horace the satirist, we have Ovid the elegiast, and we have Luke and the historian, and every single person in Dante's day, if they saw this list, would have one question. Where's Terence, the writer of all of those comedies? Where is Terence? He's not in the list. Because the writer of comedy is standing right there. Well, at least the first incarnation of him, the pilgrim, is standing right there. Terence is dropped from this list, hmm, probably for honest reasons, or at least probably for poetic reasons. Because, oh, we have all these great genres, epic and satire and history and elegy. Where's comedy? Oh, oops, here comes comedy. He's walking right there with Virgil. <laughs> Virgil goes on, we're going to come back to that, Virgil goes on and says, because each of them shares with me the title of the lone voice called out, they honor me and thus do well. And so I shall gather, Dante says, the beautiful school of that lord of the highest song which soars above all the others like an eagle. You should know that there's a real translation problem in that last thing I just read. It's unclear that the lord, that lord of the highest song that soars above, it's not clear if the that soars above is the Lord or that soars above is the song. It's it's a little bit of a funky wording in the medieval Tuscan, so it's a little bit hard to track down. So this bit is this coming of the great poets, and they are in limbo. There's just no other way for me to think about this except that here is a celebration of human achievement. This is thus Dante's humanism. Problem is, as I said last time, it's in the first circle of hell. It's not a shining achievement of Renaissance thought. Rather, here they are, all of them together, the best that humans can do without any divine intervention. And so they're celebrated and yet at the same time damned. Let's move on. After they had chatted among themselves for a bit, they turned to me with welcoming gestures, and my master smiled at all this. This is the only real smile in Inferno. Virgil has already given Dante an 
comforting, comforting facial gesture earlier, if you remember. He said maybe it's a half smile. It's not, doesn't actually say smile in the text. It's a comforting gesture. I don't know what that is if it's not kind of a half smile, but it doesn't directly say smile. The only time there's an actual smile in Inferno is right here when they, when all the Poets are chatting with each other, and they turn and make a welcoming gesture to Dante, and Virgil smiles. It's got to be a lot of ego there, right? To put yourself there in that group and have your poetic master smile at the fact that the other great writers are welcoming you. Then they gave me even more honor it goes on, in that they made me one of their company. Ah, finally, comedy is amongst them. So that I was sixth in this wise council. Sixth. I mean, you know, this is a guy who's written a series of lyric, we'd say now lyric poems, a series of lyrics. This is a guy who's written a book, The Vita Nova, The New Life. This is a guy who's got two unfinished treatises and, I don't know, a chunk of the Inferno. Maybe he's even revising this, so maybe there's a chunk of the Inferno at this point when he revises it. That's what he's got to his name. And he's sixth amongst them? This is an unbelievable brag. This is... (laughs) This is something that's kind of crazy, putting yourself sixth. Except there's a quibble. Sixth. The number of humans. It's not exactly the best number. It's not seven. It's not three. It's not a hundred. It's not 33. It's not nine. It's 27. It's six humans. You know, the sixth day of creation. Us. So the sixth in this wise council may not be as glorious as some commentators have seen it. Because that medieval number of six, that numerology running under it, isn't the greatest. If there were one more poet there, if Propertius had come with them, in which case we would definitely say that Ovid is the tragedian amongst the group, and then Propertius is the elegiast. But okay, if Propertius had been there amongst them, and then Dante walked into them with Virgil, and he was the seventh in the group, then we could really say, wow, look at that, holy crow, he's he's putting himself in a divine perfection with the, as being the seventh. But he's the sixth. It further underscores the notion that maybe this is the best that humans can do on their own, under their own steam. This is, poem goes on, this is how we went on toward the light. Light? Where are we again? Remind me where we are. Talking of things that should be left in silence now, although it was good to speak of them when I was there. Oh, see, this is why this canto makes me uncomfortable. Why so coy, Mr. Dante? Why so coy? Now, there's hints later in the poem. I could point you to passages in Purgatorio where we're going to meet another poet, and Dante's going to hear this other great poet talk about the nature of poetry with another poet. They're going to, and Dante's going to overhear them talking about poetry. So maybe here, you know, we're that later bit here. They're talking about poetry, and it seems right. What? What else would they talk about? They're not going to talk about what they had for dinner. They're not. They're not going to talk about. I don't know whose dog is cutest. I mean, what are what are what is Horace, Ovid, Luke, and Homer, Dante, and Virgil going to talk about? Except the nature of poetry. But it feels a little coy, and it feels a little winking, and it feels like something's being left out. And in fact, 
this is part of the problem, I think, with this canto for me, even though I now celebrate its ambivalence. The whole thing rings coy. When Virgil says, I saw a powerful one come down, you know, and pull up the souls of the Old Testament, we the reader know who's there, what, who that is. We know who he's talking about. Sure, it's a good characterization of Virgil who doesn't really understand divine things, and yet at the same time, it just brings up a lot of problems, and it's I just you know it it would be better to clarify it instead of relying on me, the reader, to fill it in, and just like this list of of, of characters, Homer, Horace, Ovid, Lucan, and saying where's Terence? Okay, maybe as a modern reader, you don't necessarily know that, but a good learned medieval person would ask that question. Where is Terence in this group? So I filled it in for you, but again, it's being coy. And here, finally, it is really coy. Talking of things that should be left in silence now, although it was good to speak of them when I was there. What, you don't want to tell me about poetry? You don't want to tell me about how poetry is created or what they told you about poetry, how what they told you how to write about poetry? If Dante had gone down this road, is the problem that the canto would have gotten too long? I have a feeling yes. Dante is, mm, for the next several cantos, going to seem to be in a rush. After this canto, we're going to start to hit the deadly sins. We're going to hit lust. We're going to hit gluttony. We're going to hit avarice. We're going to hit the deadly sins one after another in the cantos. The next canto coming up, canto five, is about lust. And the next canto after that is about gluttony. And it's just going to, you know, bang along with the deadly sins. And it seems like if there's seven deadly sins and it's banging along at one canto per deadly sin, we're going to be out of this thing in about eight more cantos, right? And done. Except there's 34 cantos of Inferno. And it does seem as if Dante is clipping along here and then suddenly we're going to come to a point where it seems like he slows down and suddenly the sins are going to start to expand and they're going to take up more than one canto and maybe at this point in writing the poem he's still trying to keep a clip going and so he's editing out what would be this conversation because surely this conversation about how poetry works which is what again what I take that they're talking about how poetry works this would blow out into multiple cantos surely my gosh wouldn't you want to hear how homer says poetry works now ovid says poetry works now lucan says history works now horace says words are used in rhetoric and wouldn't you want to hear virgil answer them and wow it would be something so maybe the coyness is a matter of the pacing. He's clipping it off. And again, we're gonna the next cantos are gonna clip off one deadly sin at a time for three cantos. But all that's ahead. And maybe I'm giving Dante here the benefit of the doubt on the coyness. Although, again, the coyness of the canto as a whole drives me nuts. Okay, last bit. We came to the pediment of a noble castle, wrapped seven times by towering walls, which were themselves defended all around by a beautiful brook. This sounds so allegorical. Seven towers, seven walls with towers, defended by a brook. I mean, what are these? And believe me, there's lots of commentary on this. Is this uh, the seven towering walls? Is this the trivium and the quadrivium, the two uh, divisions of learning from classical literature, the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and logic, the quadrivium, music, math, geometry, and we would say astronomy, they would say astrology, but study of the stars. Is this the trivium and the quadrivium, and that's what it represents, this castle? Is it seven virtues, seven human virtues and not cardinal virtues? 
and this brook. What is this brook? Why is it there? Why does it surround the castle? Some of the early commentators claim it's the way you have to cross over a brook. Um, you have to uh, uh, deny the world in order to do scholarly study. You kind of have to cross over and be baptized into the world of scholarly study and the great ways of thinking. Of course, these very people would be positing that this is all the castle of noble human learning. Now, it is. It just seems to be screaming at us that it's allegorical of something. We came to the pediment of a noble castle. No, no. Where are you again? What? Where? Let me just keep reminding you. First circle of hell. We came to the pediment of a noble castle wrapped seven times by towering walls, which were themselves defended all around by a beautiful brook. And then the moment in which you know I'm going to completely lose it. The next line. We crossed over this as on solid ground. Oh, man, there it is. What is going on? They're walking on water. This, to me, is yet another example of Dante's inability at this point or his lack of desire to figure out the corporeality of the afterlife. Listen, is Karen a spirit? Is his boat a spirit? Are these actual people? Is this castle real? Is it, you know, I mean, or would you put your hand through it if you touched it? Is is Dante real? I take it he is. How can he walk on water? I understand how the shades can walk across this brook as on solid ground. How can Dante walk on it as on solid ground? Is he in his body? He is. We'll find out over and over again to come. He is. And we've seen him faint. We've seen him give corporeal responses to things, or at least seem to fall asleep at a very inopportune moment. We've seen him do all of this. So this bit, we crossed over this as on solid ground. It pains me because I want Dante to have figured this out, and he's so far shying away from it. Again, the great thing about Dante is he will not forever shy away from this question. Let me say that my Italian scholar friends in this online group I'm on, oh my God, they go crazy over this line. And my quibble with it about corporeality, they would jump up and down and stomp on me over because, <laughs> because most of them are going to see this as deeply symbolic and allegorical of human learning able to cross turb turbulent waters about uh, humans being able to ford what is unfordable through classical learning. That all sounds great to me. I just keep coming back to first circle of hell, first circle of hell. And Dante, is he there? Is he corporeal? Is he walking? Does he hurt? Does his feet hurt? Is he sweating? Is he breathing hard? What's he doing? Dante, the poet, will eventually get to all of this, and it will get answered. But I think right now, for me... He's being carried away. Again, most of the early commentators see this stream as eloquence. It is the stream that you must cross in order to get to, to human learning. It's, it's, about, it's about turning away from the temptations of the world before you enter the castle of human learning. And I passed through the seven gates of, with these sages, and we got to a meadow with fresh green grass. Oh, wow, in hell? It sounds like the Elysian Fields. It sounds like Virgil, Aeneid. Book six, is Dante recasting Virgil's underworld, even the Elysian fields, as hell? If so, he's really poking his thumb 
in his poetic master's eye? Or is Dante being carried away in this vision of human learning? If so, then he's losing a little bit of control of the passage. Or is Dante doing all of the above and more? Which is where I tend to come down. So inside this castle with this meadow and the fresh green grass, there are people with slow, great eyes and great authority in their appearances. They didn't speak so much, only with soft voices. So early on, I said to you, Castelvetro, this Renaissance uh, scholar who wrote a commentary on the comedy, said when Beatrice says in Canto Two. When I get to heaven, I'll praise you, Virgil, to God for doing this, for rescuing Dante. And I said, Castelvetro said, what good is this to Virgil, who's damned? Whoa, I mean, what difference does it make? Apparently, it does make a difference. Because where's the sighing? These people seem called out to a better place, this castle across this brook, Where's the sign? Yes, they have slow, grave eyes, but they have great authority in their appearance, and they have, for gosh sake, green grass. There will be no more of that in hell, I can assure you. It's nice. It's a meadow. People are walking around talking about poetry and philosophy. It's wild. In fact, here's what it is, and this is my final point. Dante has come to a place that is like a country estate in the Middle Ages, the very best kind. A beautiful castle, brook, fresh water, green grasses. This is where you escape Florence to get to. This is where you live out in your country house. And this is what is so wild. Remember I said earlier that there is a civic vision of the afterlife based on the Christian notion from the Apocalypse of St. John or the book the Protestants call the Revelations. And I said there's this civic version of the afterlife of the city with the streets paved with gold and, you know, all that stuff. Great. What there isn't is a civic vision of hell. There is, in fact, now I'm going to refine my point, a civic vision of heaven as the afterlife, a city of God. But here we start to see a civic vision of hell. It's got a country estate. Here we are, a nice landed place where you'd go to escape the cares of the world. Later, we're going to come to walls and battlements of hell. Later, we're going to come to bureaucrats in hell. <laughs> crazy, crazy bureaucrats in hell. We're going to come to all kind of functionaries of hell, including what you think of as demons, the black-horned, vile demons with the wings, but other characters too. We're going to find this entire kind of structure of hell itself, and this is what Dante brings. This is what his imagination brings. There is a long tradition of the city of God, of heaven. There is very little understanding of hell as such until we get to Dante. And Dante has not only an architecture of hell, he has a civics of hell. And we're starting here with a castle, with a moat, well, at least a brook, with set with towering walls, with green grass. It's all lovely, except it's in hell. So... It's going to get weirder. One more bit from Canto 4, and then we'll finish it off. But one more bit in which something so surprising happens that, oh, I would say for the first 20 years that I read comedy, I didn't even see it. So come back. Join me 
on the next episode of Walking with Dante, and we will finish off Canto 4. We will finish off Limbo forever. I'll quit talking about ambiguity, well, for a little bit until we get Among the Lustful, and then I'll bring it back up again, because the Lustful is going to bring up a different kind of ambiguity, but that's a whole different matter and a whole different episode. Subscribe if you wouldn't mind. I would really appreciate you to drop a comment if you can. And whether you're listening on Apple or Google, a comment is really helpful. And (laughs) it's a lot of effort on my part. So, (laughs) hey, can I beg for you to do your part? Drop a comment there for me. That would be terrific. And subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of this, a podcast that walks slowly through the greatest work, in my opinion, of Western culture, Dante's Comedy. See you next time. Thank you.